I think the simple term that we can always refer to when we talk about human trafficking is that the activities that involve these three elements important force, fraud and coercion and for the purpose to obtain some type of service or labor including commercial sex act yeah and traffickers usually they use this element force fraud and coercion to manipulate their what you call individual or the victims and force them into labor or commercial sexual exploitation so i think human trafficking is often refer in our in our research usually human trafficking we refer as a crimes against humanity right. so against people and uh, in contrast usually smuggling of migrants we refer as a crime against the state child labor discourse on child labor very minimal in the context of human trafficking so when they talk about human trafficking they talk about sexual exploitation of children and there could be some you know straight begging you know some syndicate begging involving children and that may happen in Malaysia in the context of refugee children living in urban areas they don't know what to do and being syndicated or being you know there's a syndicate behind the the straight begging and all that organized begging with regards to child labor I don't see direct relationship in in the in the literature lah at least in the literature I don't see a direct link where people try or scholars try to connect between child labor and human trafficking but if you go back to the child labor itself you don't don't even think about human trafficking just look at child labor there are a lot of elements in there as I said earlier the three the, the three elements caution fraud right so these elements could actually be exist in the context of child labor either worst form of child labor or just child labor so but i think of it like much more work is needed so but the question is why the report is the making comparison between previous years previous year and the reporting year and this number used to justify the placement of the tier system so that's what i i i said that i think the tier system i don't see the value of putting countries into tier system but the narratives are good because that actually shake and move you know different actors because you can't just compare the number of prosecution number of investigation number of enforcement between years because in every year there's a unique um, situation or um, event you know take place and therefore that would you know um, affect the so-called achievement in terms of number and the, there's another point about the scoring system So the way they they place country right? tier 1 tier 2 tier 2 watch list and then tier yeah. tier 3 right mm-hmm. and then so this is in a way say okay you pass you fail you pass you fail right and if you fail there will be a repercussion to that but the problem is that how do you place a country in particular tier if you don't have a scoring system Please listen carefully. Good morning or good afternoon or good evening whenever you listen to this podcast. With me Jess and Mariko, welcome to Immigrant Podcast, a podcast dedicated to highlight the stories around migration and cross-cutting human rights issues across East and Southeast Asia. The Immigrant Podcast is an initiative of BBC Network, Better Engagement Between East and Southeast Asia. You can find BBC on social media platforms like Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. BBC. Share, connect, and collaborate. Today's theme is migration and the IT. Uh, 
trafficking in person to mark the World Day Against Trafficking in Persons in uh, July 30. And um, together with us, uh, we have Mas Andika Wahab, the Research Fellow Institute of Malaysian and International Studies of National University of Malaysia. Hi, everyone. How are you? Hi. <laughs> fine. Are you fine? How's the lockdown yeah. on your place? In Malaysia? Yeah. Well, still in five figures. Um, we don't know. We, we are hoping that we will recover soon because I think the vaccination rate is quite... Um, uh, it's quite high now. I mean, the Ministry of Health is expediting the uh, vaccination. Yeah. How about you, Mariko? How's London? Um, well, yeah, I'm. I'm currently in London. I. Well, we our lockdown, all the restriction measures within the country, England, is finished. Um, this like starting this week, most of the restriction lifted, but the cases are quite high, like forty thousand. Mm. Plus, sometimes 50,000 nearly, but I think they just decided that, um, you know, a lot of people already vaccinated and then just can't really stop people going out. Um, yeah, see how, but it's getting really busy. We're having really hot days as well. So, yeah, um, yeah. it's nice, but it's a bit boring. Um, but yeah, see yeah. how it goes, kind of thing. Yeah. Even Indonesia, it's not just worrying, it's frustrating. Mm, <laughs> you I know. know it's so, it's been a while. Yeah. Um, today, uh, as mentioned before, we will talk about the theme of migration and trafficking in person. And we have Mas Andika right here uh, as an academic. Mas Andika usually works on research about migrants. Yeah, Mas, is that, is that correct, Mas Andika? Yes, broadly. Uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, somehow, human trafficking related with migrants also. Okay, Mas, is, is yes. that right? Uh, so, yeah. Mas Andika, what do you what do you do uh, on your works about this issue? Okay, uh, thank you, thank you, Jess. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I can respond that now. Uh, maybe just a bit addition to my research interest. I, apart from what Mr. Jess has already spoken about labor migration, which I obviously focus on that area, but I also cover another aspect uh, which I call corporate anthropology which I also focus on business and human rights as well as um, social compliance assurance so when I do this research it's also closely related to the issue of forced labor and that being part of the trafficking in person so that's that's just the brief background of my research interest and the project that I'm currently doing yeah but I think Responding to your question on on what I, I'm actually doing now, <clears throat> my current work, um, the current work that I'm doing, I actually divide them into three categories. One, because this is also one of our KPI in my university that we have to do research and publication. So that's one area that I'm currently doing or you know working on. And the second part of it is the uh, training, um, developing training modules for business in the area of uh, labor standard compliance. And then the third one is I also involved in practice. Lah. So basically in the practice, we are supporting some, uh, not supporting, uh, providing advisory um, inputs to companies on building their internal um, assurance system 
to address labor standards non-compliant. So on the research part, the one that I shared earlier, the first, the big, the big chunk of my responsibility, I do research and publication on the areas of um, COVID-19, the impacts of COVID-19 to uh, migrant workers and refugee refugee population in Malaysia broadly. And then I also embark on um, a number of research that related to course of uh, recruitment of migrant workers that also linked to forced labor and the cost of recruitment and one particular area that I also look at especially in the plantation sector that I study on children presence in the plantation sector so these are the three big research areas that I actually work on and they are all related to the, the what they call the human trafficking or trafficking person report that was published Thank you, Mas Andika, for the explanation. But yeah. before we go further, before we go further, actually, I would like to ask you about. Um, can you tell us, you know, uh, the people who are not very familiar with this issue, what trafficking actually is about, Mas? Yeah. So yeah, I think that's the question. Simple question but uh, maybe confusing to many people not just us but i guess in, in fact the enforcement personnel got confused with the with the term so i think the simple term that we can always refer to when we talk about human trafficking is that the uh, activities that involve these three elements important force fraud and caution and for the purpose to obtain some type of uh, service or labor including commercial uh, sex act yeah and traffickers usually they use this element force fraud and caution to manipulate their what you call individual or the victims and force them into labor or commercial sexual exploitation now in the course of doing that usually traffickers uh, they will look for people and specific people especially people who are vulnerable for many reasons like become vulnerable including they are vulnerable in terms of emotional and psychological vulnerability some people who are in economic hardship some people lack of social safety net or in fact some people who are being victims of um, natural disasters or political uh, repression in particular country so i think the traffickers will take advantage to their of their vulnerability so i think that maybe i, I assume that would be the easiest way to to express what human trafficking is yeah. is uh, is it just the same with uh, smuggling or is it a different things must between the trafficking in person and smuggling well uh, um, in terms of definition obviously they are different because the even if you look at the international document so we have the protocol specific for trafficking we have a protocol as well for smuggling of migrants but when it comes to um, at country level or domestication of that um, international convention or documents into uh, national usually i don't know in much in other countries but in malaysia we combine not we combine that the, the scenarios are combined but i think the the two crimes um, smuggling of migrants and human trafficking are part under one combined act we call anti-trafficking in person and smuggling of migrant acts yeah so that's the act that we have in malaysia but in terms of definition they are they are actually uh, very different yeah so i think human trafficking is often refer in our in our research usually human trafficking we refer as a crimes against humanity right. so against people 
And uh, in contrast, usually smuggling of migrants we refer as a crime against the state because you cross the border, you 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 violate the um, immigration acts or the sovereign state. So that's why we usually categorize them into these two baskets. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so that's, that's a really good explanation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, But uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, commercial sex act, right? Yeah, you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier uh, about uh, commercial sex act. So, um, does human trafficking have to be always about commercial sex act or no? Um, not always. I mean, obviously not always because not 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 all elements of fraud or exploitation just only take place for the uh, in relation to commercial exploitation. Um, in in my because I'm not an expert in the commercial sexual exploitation aspect of the human trafficking. I more focus on forced labor. But just to respond, I have to whether human trafficking always to be you know related to commercial sex. I think the answer straight away is no. Because it may involve other, it could be forced labor, and it could be debt bondage of workers. It could be in other countries prison labors, and in Malaysia it's quite obvious as well. Uh, but I mean, to what extent that is actually real happening in Malaysia, I don't know. But the um, if you look at literature, there's like growing literature talking about organs removal in Malaysia. That may also involve children organs removal. But you know, I'm not an expert in that area. But I think this is one area that word uh, discourse and exploration like how what is the nature and extent of this uh, form of human trafficking right um andika i as you mentioned about children maybe you we want to talk <clears throat> a little bit about trafficking that involves children because it has also another little bit different definition um, the children is a bit more protected in terms of the definitions of how you know we identify trafficking in in children and also because you work in the in the field of um, sorry the, your research covers area of um, child labor mm. can you a little bit explain about us the you know how yeah like how we we understand the, the trafficking in children and maybe your research that you're looking at um, in this area yeah so um i think i, I have to be honest that because when we look at the human trafficking discourse and review of literature, child labor discourse on child labor very minimal in the context of human trafficking. So when they talk about human trafficking, they talk about sexual exploitation of children, and there could be some you know straight begging, you know some syndicate begging involving children, and that may happen in Malaysia in the context of refugee children living in urban areas. They don't know what to do and being syndicated. Or being, you know, there's a syndicate behind the um, the street begging and all that organized begging. But with regards to child labor, I don't see direct relationship in in the in the literature, like at least in the literature, I don't see a direct link where people try or scholars try to connect between child labor and human trafficking. But if you go back to the child labor itself, you don't don't even think about human trafficking. Just look at child labor. There are a lot of elements in there, as I said earlier, the three the, the three elements, caution, fraud, right? So these elements could actually be exist in the context of child labor, either worst form of child labor or just child labor. Yeah. So, but I think much more work is needed to to link these two so that the discourse moving forward, we can try to link that. Even if you go to the trafficking person report, child labor has been very minimal being highlighted in there. I don't know what's the reason, 
um, maybe I don't know <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was reading it as well, and also the definitions that the international organization use for um, you know trafficking in children. So they they, they say that um, the you know the in terms of when the victims are children, it doesn't really matter how it's done. So coercion didn't have to get involved. But if you are recruiting or employ, you know like making people do the the labor uh, or you know with with the force. Mm-hmm. Um, that already is considered as child trafficking. So exactly. I guess it's it's for me like it's well, child labor is already a trafficking. Exactly. <laughs> me too. Me too. When I ex- when I read the trafficking person report and other reports that specifically talk about human trafficking, very minimal that child labor has been linked to that. Mm-hmm. I don't I I don't understand what's the reason for that. But if you look at what you have said, like you're looking at the elements of it. Um, they are linked they are yeah. linked yeah yeah i wonder why um yeah there's something to look into i guess yeah. yeah i think the way that the same in malaysia when we talk about child labor people don't look at the child act although child act has a very detailed extent explanation about child exploitation but when we talk about child labor in malaysian context we immediately divert our attention to employment act because there's a there's a explicit provision on child labor or children children in the employment sector under employment act rather than child act so whenever we engage into child labor discourse we directly go to the employment act rather than the child act itself wow mm i'm sure the same in other countries i guess there's something in there <laughs> i don't know i i don't know how to express that but yeah. as as i said the moment we talk about child labor it goes into the business and employment discourse rather than exploitation as we talk about children organs removal among children or children being forced in child uh, uh, soldier right so this is like a very common discourse in human trafficking involving children but not child labor oh i see i see i mean in the in the area of your research uh, maybe in plantation sectors um like how how is the situations of uh, children involved in the in the work there um i mean just i just i'm curious mm. on you know like you know who they are and you know what the mm. conditions that they are in well um in malaysian context i think to be fair child labor or children in the employment sector or maybe child labor um, they exist in many sectors actually not just in plantation but i think the one that is more prevalent is in uh uh in plantation sector because the remoteness of the business itself it's far from public uh, that's one and uh it doesn't really so much you know um prevalence in in peninsula malaysia because of the the social uh background in malaysia because in, in sorry in peninsula malaysia because in peninsula malaysia you don't see a lot um immigrant children but in Sabah, you have different, especially Sabah and Sarawak, you have different pockets of children. So in Sabah, go straight to the plantation sector. And then um, uh, how, what the situation look like um, with regards to the child labor. So maybe start with the context in Sabah. So in Sabah, it's very close to Indonesia and Philippines. Yeah? And there's a very complex history of people are moving from Indonesia, Kalimantan in particular, and then Philippines from the southern Philippines, 
into Sabah. So it has been decades that people are moving in and out to Sabah. Yeah. And um, when they are moved, so that's one. Second one, in Sabah, we have different pockets of children. We have children that we consider as stateless people. Uh, um, uh, local children also um, not, undocu- uh, not documented because they are living in rural areas, remote areas. There's no you know, department of registration, so therefore they don't have the necessary documentation. And we also have, we call refugee children in Sabah. Uh, now they don't call the term refugee children, but they rather use um, IMM 13 card holders. So this is these are actually um, um, what they call Filipinos children uh, who were actually previously like during the you know during the the problem in in Philippines. I don't want to explain the problem in Philippines, but they are actually um, the one that seeking asylum in Malaysia. So we have this population in in Sabah. We call IMM 13 card holders. So they are people of concern to UNHCR, and we also have migrant children and. These migrant children can be categorized into two: the one with documents, the one without documents, who have been in Sabah for many generations. So these people, these children, they are number one, they are vulnerable, and they can't go to school because our government school system. Um, I think we allow um, uh, immigrant, provided you have documents, but I think that you will have to pay double the cost or something. So there are barriers for for you to access. That's one. Second, if you're undocumented, you can't access at all the government system, the government school system. And um, without education and without documentation, and we know this group of children are there in rural areas and they don't know what to do. They started working and also rely on the, um, the their parents' background because their parents' background also in farming. Their background uh, also in plantation sector. They are also workers in plantation sector. So I think... This is where I think the vulnerability starts, where the children don't go to school and they don't have access to basic facilities and therefore they start working in the young age. Yeah, so I think that is the systemic nature of, of child labor. But if I were to explain the, the conditions, I think it depends on the case by on a case by case basis. So in big companies, there may be a system to regulate and govern the um, the hiring of workers. There may be very minimal children involved in the plantation sector in the big companies, but in small and medium-sized companies and smallholders. Remember that in, in Malaysia, we have 500,000 smallholders. Yeah, it's, it's half a million of smallholders. So these smallholders, uh, maybe, maybe, I'm not saying all, maybe some of them may be, uh, you know, allowing the of course, they hire migrant workers. Some of them hire migrant workers, and maybe they turn the blind eye of the migrant workers bringing their children, helping them to undertake plantation activities. So now, it is not to say that these children are all child labor. It doesn't reach that level yet until you see the condition. Now, the conditions that we are looking at when we look at as uh, when we assess the child labor incidents in plantation and even in other sectors as well, we are looking at the time spent by children and then the type of activities children do and the access to school right so these three three key indicators when um, we are looking at when we are looking at incidents of child labor in many sectors including in plantation sector so whether there are child labor there are and they are scattered uh, but i think that would be on a case-by-case basis to tell them so in terms of activities of course some children depending on the age they are doing collecting those foods they are yeah, if if they are 
some some of them actually doing the harvesting or loading. So there are activities that considered hazardous, where children, regardless of their age, uh, below 18 years old, they shouldn't engage in that work. But we can see that children are doing that. But there are also other children are doing more lighter work, like you know collecting loose fruits and all that. So it depends on the case of the children. Okay, but um, uh, actually I would like to ask one thing, uh, Pak Andika. Sure. Uh, yes. What sectors that mostly involving children as forced labor? Uh, well, beside, um, beside plantation, right? Beside, beside plantation. plantation, yeah. It could be um, one that is more obvious is informal sector because it's not highly regulated. So informal, not informal sector, informal economies. So if you go to Sabah, um, I don't know whether you have, you know, visited Sabah, but I think the same scenarios could happen as well in many other developing countries where you see a lot of children on the street selling, selling, you know, selling things like selling, selling. So these people are selling, selling things, and that things, whatever they sell, these are all top global brands. Like, you now they are selling this and. I don't know what's the responsibility of the the um, what do you call it, the global brands like because when you're seeing children bringing your product and selling your product, there's no there's no guidance and all that, and that would pinpoint to the incidence of child labor. What is the responsibility of global brands making sure whatever that they produce, not just during the production but also the 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 end part of the supply chain. Namely, the consumer um, dissemination of products. What is their responsibility to look at that? So, go back to your question again. In other sectors, apart from the uh, plantation, of course, in other some other agri agri sectors, like maybe we can look at. Um, um, I'm not sure if if that is prominent on cocoa, but rubber could be. Um, in other sectors, like maybe not so obvious in construction. Informal economy, yes, could be. What about domestic work? Domestic work, I haven't come across any particular case. Yeah, yet. yeah. it's because very difficult very, to see yeah. as well. Yes, yeah, because yeah. they are private, right? They are private okay. setting. It, it's yeah, it's far from public. But yeah, actually, like if you're looking at all these uh, products that it, you know, it's not only children, but people sell on the street that might you know exactly. involve um, kind of forced form of labor. Um, it's very difficult for big businesses to track those down. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a mounting and tough, tough job to track and to to make them traceable. Yeah. But I think with the power they have, they can do something. Yeah. And do you think there is a willingness for it? I think companies like or whatever. I I shouldn't you know single out the name, but I think these global brands have the commitment to do that. Yeah. But I think it's just that I don't think they can do it alone. They need to do it together with the community, with the regulators, with the parents. Yeah. So everyone has to play a role. Um, maybe I think we wanted to talk a little bit about the the recent report. Um, you know, this this is annual report that always comes from the United States um, Department of State, the um, Wild Trafficking Report, and. Um, Yeah, we've, we've we've noticed that the, the Malaysia has been downgraded for this year for tier three, and I think Jess wanted to ask something about it as well. Actually, I would like to ask about um, mm-hmm. as mentioned before, right? Uh, 
the, the, the Department of States of United States of America uh, downgraded Malaysia into tier three or the worst ranking mm-hmm. on their latest report about trafficking in person. I would like to ask, do you uh, agree with that, Pak Andika? Based on your uh, experience, based based on your research, or yeah, I yeah I have I have that report, like not just the 2021, the previous reports as well. Um, I agree with many of the points being raised, the narrative uh, in the report with regards to um, Malaysia and specifically on forced labor. Um, but I. From the beginning, but I, I, from the beginning, I actually do not, you know, 100% in agreement with um, the way a country being placed into the tier system. Yeah. You know, I, I, I have three actually um, methodological um, question which require further clarity. Actually, I have this question a lot. I mean, for for some time, not a lot, sorry, for quite some time already. But you know, um, maybe we don't have the opportunity to. To discuss that, but I guess this needs to be clarified. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I agree. It's very difficult to um, classify, and it's a bit not very clear how they are classified and what's yeah. the kind of standard for it. But yeah, I think in terms of like kind of issues raised uh, in the report, um, is yeah, I've also read, and then some of them are also explained by you and. Um, yeah, about with you know talking with you, I understand much better. And also, like it touches a lot upon on corruptions um, within the the you know the government and law enforcement officials. Um, do you oh. see that as a, also a big problem? Well, yeah. Um, you mean the enforcement from the government side, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And also like. Yeah, there's a corruption around, you know, like how the, sometimes the visa might be processed, or like people have been, uh, people are allowed to to cross the border um, in, you know, the border security officers in reception of bribe, or things like that. Also, like you know, some of the maybe like the plantations uh, or the companies are mm. associated with the, the government or the government officials that involved uh, some form of trafficking. Well, I think the discussion about the um, effectiveness of the uh, enforcement and the lack of personnel to go and do the investigation and enforce enforce the law, I think that has been already in the report for many years already. Okay. Um, what I so this is again go back to the question of of the tiering system. Um, if you look at the report, right? If you look at the report, they they I think in the first paragraph or second paragraph report that they acknowledge COVID-19 as the key impediment in the in the uh, reporting period period last year. So that's how COVID-19 um, you know uh, disturbed the court operation or the justice system in Malaysia. That also um, put on hold some business operation because of COVID outbreak. And subsequently, there was also very limited enforcement operation can be done last year, right? Uh, I mean, during the year. Yeah. And um, they also, I mean, practically speaking, a lot of resources during the peri- reporting period last year was also diverted to um, address the COVID-19. So in a way, 
let's say you have 100 uh, enforcement personnel and 100 personnel have been some of them have been diverted to address for, um, COVID-19 rather than enforcing the the forced labor so my point is that the report acknowledged COVID-19 mm-hmm. as the key impediment but the question is why the report is still making comparison between previous years previous year and the reporting year and this number used to justify the placement of the tier system so that's what I, I, I said that I think the tier system I don't see the value of putting countries into tier system but the narratives are good because that actually shake and move you know different actors in the in the you know because you can't just compare the number of prosecution number of investigation number of enforcement between years because in every year there's a unique um, situation or um, event you know take place and therefore that would you know um, um, affect the so-called achievement in terms of number so that's my my you know Yeah, my yeah. concern yeah yeah no um thank you no i i agree i mean it's yeah i i don't also agree with the pay system and it's kind of putting different countries in comparisons and competitions um it's not really and also like contexts are very different as well so uh, exactly and the, there's another point about the scoring system you know if you if you go so the way they they place country right Uh, tier one, tier two, tier two watch list, and then tier yeah. tier three, right? Mm-hmm. And then, so this is in a way say, okay, you pass, you fail, you pass, you fail, right? And if you fail, there will be repercussion to that. But the problem is that how do you place a country in particular in particular tier if you don't have a scoring system? You imagine that you go to school, right? This is the the very conventional way of grading grading a person or organization. If you go to school, if you your mark is below 40, 40 50 then you fail and then if you 50 and 51 above you pass right so you have a scoring system to justify why you in whatever the tier is now in in that in in the situation of tip report we don't see that scoring system because if they are seriously looking at tiering system that has to be justified with very simple and logical mathematical formula because as an academic we are looking at the at the mechanic of it why you are putting them in that country because if there is no scoring system there's no marking and all that it, a lot of discretion in between in making decision whether you are in tier 3 or tier 2 right so like because we are academic we, we are lecturer right we are teacher so we are we are, we are marking our students right we are marking our students and we we put a grade based on what they you know So the other thing about the meeting the the minimum standard of the of the the tip lah TVPA if I'm not mistaken I couldn't recall that but uh, so if you go to any other countries the same country report as long as they are tier one below they will start with the country XXX does not meet the minimum standard to eliminate trafficking in person the same with other countries. Yeah. So, what does that make different between countries A and countries B in tier 2 and tier 3 because both of them still does not meet the minimum standard. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. Yeah. That's right. Well, that's um as American way of looking at it, I guess. But I also want to kind of 
go back to our regions, maybe, um, you know, mm -hmm. this is American uh, reports kind of looking at, you know, the all around the world, but also like because you have invo involved in, you know, some of the, the regional work within, especially in ASEAN context, mm -hmm. how would you see that, um, you know, this regional, um, you know, body or as, as an ASEAN um, dealing with uh, trafficking in person? You mean reporting or just dealing with well, the... Just in general, like, you know, the efforts, um, you know, the cooperations, collaborations. Yes, because the ASEAN have the ACDIP, right? Mm -hmm. so, uh, the convention, yeah. Mm. Well, um, I think, let me just start with this. Um, own the initiative is a good thing. Meaning to say that we have the trafficking person at the global level document, and now we are having our own active the ASEAN Convention trafficking person. I think that effort is uh, is a good effort because we own the initiative and we design our future based on the document that we see. Now the the problem the the, the second question is how do we operate operationalize that? Right. Um, I think it's so much into. It, it goes back to the owners or the custodian of that document. Who is the custodian of that document? So I think the same in, in, in one particular country. If you look at one particular country like Malaysia, Indonesia or Thailand, um, the lead agency that usually leads the um, national efforts on trafficking person usually from coming from security sector, yeah, either home affairs or whatever, but they are in the security sector. So I think the way that we design and the way that we bring forward the active, it's so much into security perspective, which is not bad, but lacks of coordination and lacks of emphasis on the um, victim's uh, perspective. I think in many cases in human trafficking, at uh, the forced labor aspect of, of the victim-centered is, is very less being um, emphasized. So I think there's no problem. I mean, um, as long as you know we can balance that and uh, more efforts are doing that rather than just sitting in the you know in the ASEAN secretariat designing and drafting documents i think they should go down to the ground level and see how they can support or realize the documents yeah i mean i i myself also quite struggle to to work on issues of trafficking because it's so much security centered and it, the focus is more about kind of, you know, the law enforcement. Uh, we want to find the bad persons that, you know, involved in trafficking. And it's so little like focus on protection of the people experiencing that um, being in, in trafficked or being in forced labor. Um, how, you know, what do you think like how can we maybe as a civil society um bring the agendas to be you know more looked at within this anti-trafficking sphere where you know it's a lot of security focus around well i think there's already a platform at the at the regional level i couldn't remember the um that was two years ago that we worked at the regional level. There's um, the one that under APSC, the political security pillar that works on the area. 
of trafficking in person. But there's another. I think there's a permanent window that we can engage. Even if they don't open, we can we can request for engagement. That's one. Yeah. And secondly, we can also use other windows like the ICA. We can use SCWC. We can use SCW. In fact, if you want to use more. Um, Uh, more diplomatic way, we can use ASEAN Foundation window. We target the youth population and bring that level of discussion into the into the uh, conversation. The what they call the sectoral body lah. They call the sectoral body that in charge of the um, trafficking. Some TC, yeah, senior official and transnational organized crime. So that is the organization that is leading that. Um, so much into you know, among themselves, among the peers. I think there are opportunity for us. I think it's just need find the we just need to find the windows. There are permanent and you know alternative windows we can use to start engaging with them. I think in Malaysia we have that window. We have the uh, we call the anti um, trafficking council. I mean we can actually simulate the same scenario because it. Maybe just give you a context in Malaysia because my vision is that 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 uh, model can be applied at the regional level. So in Malaysia we have we call Malaysian anti-trafficking uh, majlis anti-pemerdagangan orang or uh, in English called anti-trafficking council. So that trafficking council, of course, led by the security sector by the Ministry of Home Affairs, but there are NGOs in there in the committee. There are service providers in the committee, and there are also other. Uh, enforcement agencies like Ministry of Human Resources, there are women ministry there, there are custom department in there, there are police in there. And we also have um, a maritime enforcement agency also being part of the MAPO. Um, and MAPO has their own secretariat, right? So this is where the NGOs have interaction with them and directly provide inputs. I don't know how much inputs being, you know, being listened to. But I think there's a platform in 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 Malaysia. So I would imagine if at the ASEAN level we have some TC, maybe what the some TC could imagine doing it in the future is that developing like um like a council and some TC. This is where the NGOs can be part of that council at the regional level. So I think if you have the permanent platform, I think you would have your agenda and you can you know in control of your agenda in future rather than just you know um. Uh, being reactive to the issues, right? So maybe in the future, I don't know whether they have that uh, kind of conversation has taken place for now. But I would imagine yeah. the same can take place in, in at ASEAN yeah. level. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. I mean, yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's always good to have the multi-stakeholder platform where you can have a conversation with the other, you know, people at the other level. Yeah, great. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, Pak Andika, yeah. <laughs> it's very good explanation. Thank you for the explanation. Uh, but I want to ask uh, now about this pandemic situation that we all are facing together. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this pandemic situation giving a direct impact to the situation of trafficking in person? Is it worsening or what do you think about it generally? Yeah, I think it has an impact, um, but the extent of that impact, I, I, you know, I don't foresee um, much different to what they're already having it now. So maybe if I can share the three 
uh, broad observation I can share with you. Maybe on number one is the um, as you know that the employment rate is growing now. Yeah. So if the employment rate is growing, that uh, in 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 many you know um, what you call conventional economic um, what you call um, model that reduce the workers' bargaining power, right? Because employment rate, you don't have much work opportunity, and a lot of people are offering that service, and that reduce the workers' bargaining power to negotiate the terms of their employment. And I think that would have an impact to uh, not only migrant workers as well because they already exist in Malaysia, but also to local workers. So, so that one element I could see may happen in the next few months as they have the employment rate going going up and going up again and second one is in in the context of current context where borders are closed um, there is no recruitment of workers new migrant workers and at the same time we are hearing businesses complaining complaining a lot that they lack uh, human resources to support their operation I think this would um, provide a space for um, some irresponsible companies to start hiring undocumented migrant workers because they know some workers already exist in Malaysia and they can't recruit new workers and they see the potential of these workers uh, with different level of vulnerability, I guess they would hire undocumented uh, migrant workers in their workforce. So hiring undocumented workers is one element of you know one you know one one pathway towards forced labor because if you undocumented, um, I don't think you would have the access to grievances, access to uh, redress, access to complaints and all that. So that's already vulnerable. The third one could be the other thing that we have seen for the past few months is the excessive hours of work especially in critical sector like manufacturing that provides all that produce PPE or in fact producing foods because foods are, are still needed even during COVID and PPEs are more alarming. So I think um, in Malaysia, some of the sectors including companies are uh, important players at the global level. So basically the global you know, demand, sorry, global demands are relying on our supply especially like, you know, hand gloves and all that. So with that pressure, I guess the companies with the situation, as I said earlier, that, uh, you know, are very, very difficult to get additional migrant workers because recruitment is stopped and they start hiring undocumented workers. And I guess with the workers that they already have in place, I guess they will start to, you know, uh, push for the workers to work harder, including working potentially more than 12 hours in a day just to meet the global demand as i said the global is pressing uh, the sorry the press the demand is pressing so i guess they need to beef up the production and i think the only element to be compromised is the hours of work i think that is something that we need to be mindful on the excessive hours of work and in malaysia the we our hours of work um, legislation is not on par with international standards so there's no requirement for you know 60 hours weekly sorry weekly cumulative uh, working hours in a week 60 hours um, so that is the international standard but we don't comply to the international standard so ma many companies will go 
to the maximum of 104 um, overtime hours in a month. And some companies can also apply for quota and they can extend to 130 or 140 hours in a month overtime. So that is very excessive. That's that's a lot. Yeah. Just just one question on that um about undocumented people because mm-hmm. you know the the businesses are in need of you know people work and then as you mentioned there's a lot of demands for people who are undocumented mm-hmm. is there any is there any kind of like you know is there any idea within the government that they might regularize these people give them a status to work or this just kind of is there any discussion around that I think they have already started. They call it previously they call it regularization, but I think now they call it recalibration program, where the companies can uh, rehire workers who are undocumented. Um, I think it's still ongoing, but I don't think that would be able to cater the the need of the workforce. Mm. It's still because companies are still making noise and saying that they lack. 10%, 20%, 30% of workforce in the plantation, in, in construction sectors, etc. So I don't, may, may, there are other as well barriers in the process because um, previously there were allegations that a lot of uh, middle person involved in the, in in channeling, yeah? in channeling undocumented workers in the system itself. So a lot of, you know, what you call, uh, Uh, misconduct and um, irresponsible individual involved in between the workers and the system so that you know demotivate the workers to come forward and get you know rehired for the yeah for the system but the the move by the government is something that is to me is is welcome today we have a very great conversation about uh, trafficking in person you know about things related to migrants and stuff. Uh, but for us, for Pak Andika, for me, for Mariko, maybe we are doing this because uh, we work on the field of human rights. We work on the field of um, migrants' issues, migrants' rights. But uh, for the listeners who maybe they are not working on the field of human rights, they are not working on the field of migrants. Why are uh, they have to concern about this issue? You know, like what's the relevance for them to listen to this issue, to be to to, to have concern on this issue? What do you think, Mas Andika? Why do people have to put concern more about trafficking in person? Well, um, I think trafficking in person in Malaysia is becoming a national interest because uh, one example is the uh, trafficking in person report made by the uh, by the U.S. State Department, and before that, uh, the two companies being in the Customs and Border Protection (CBP) by the U.S. as well, and uh, previously we were talking about rubber sector. Uh, you know, use forced labor, and previously we have a lot of negative campaigns against particular sectors in Malaysia, and that affect the the public because you would imagine like the palm sector is very much 
close to our society because this is where as i said earlier that we have 500,000 of smallholders and these smallholders have their household members and these are public but they are indirectly affected by the US state department report uh, uh, affected by the cbp uh, against the two companies because these smallholders also being part of the supply chain so it becomes the national interest and it also moves the society to work together. So that brings me to the second point on, um, I, I don't think these efforts can be done only by the government and by the NGOs, um, but that requires the whole lot of other actors like um, industry players, right? The big companies, the smallholders, the threat, the, the threat association, the threat uh, council, a lot of different actors that need to come together and you know discuss on this because for the past few years we have seen this being um, isolated from one sector to another sector uh, of society. So I don't think we can achieve something um, you know remarkable if we don't do it together. Um, in a in a holistic way, and the other thing that I I also attracted to bring this, see, um, issue on forced labor, it cannot be eliminated hundred percent without the commitment of the source country. Because if you look at the report, I read the report few a few times and look at um, the incident of forced labor and that point that's excessive. Uh, recruitment costs and also a lot of individual in between during recruitment in source country where they contribute to the uh, debt bondage and excessive cost of recruitment. So in a way to say that there are also responsibilities of the source countries yeah, uh, with regards to um, make sure that the root causes are addressed in there because some incidents of child labor, uh, sorry, incidents of forced labor may be linked to the recruitment process and how they're being recruited from their country of origin. Now, that brings me to, again, look at the scoring system and the tier system. I put I, I put a note on countries like, I, I'm not saying Indonesia is bad, yeah, or other countries is bad. If you look at the report, Indonesia being placed in tier two, uh, Bangladesh, tier two, Nepal, tier two, uh, Philippines, tier one, and Myanmar, I couldn't remember Myanmar in which tier. But these countries are source countries. Now, if you look at the report, they said the report the report says that there's a, the problem of forced labor may also happen in source country. So they acknowledge that there are some um, you know uh, some unethical practices in the recruitment stage that happen in that particular countries lah, right? But when I go back to the country and look at the report. There wasn't any publication about that. There wasn't any exposure about the recruitment process. So it doesn't sync between destination and source country. My point is that if we want to make change and real change, it has to be in a holistic migration trajectory. So from the way they are being recruited until depart in Malaysia, and then they are being repatriated or being returned back to their country of origin. So that's where the circle of migration happened, right? I think I don't think we can resolve it on our own. So definitely, we we may want to have you know engagement with Indonesia, Bangladesh, Nepal, Philippines, Myanmar. In fact, China, but China is in tier three like us <laughs> So no point of raising China. But you know we have Chinese uh, you know um, workers as well in Malaysia. We have North Korean. We have many other countries as well.
Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, I mean, it it really made me think. I mean, because hold the things involves more than one countries, and then giving scores to one country, singling out, is it just doesn't really make sense. And I think it's more it's more important that we encourage you know corporations among. Um, the countries of origins and destinations and transit countries. Malaysia is a transit country as well, so exactly, yes. yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely, yeah. It's been uh, an hour. <laughs> it's been an hour, our conversation, and it it's such a very great conversation, very fruitful conversation. Thank you, Pak Andika, for the uh, insight for us. Uh, Mariko, do you still have anything to ask or? No? no, no, it's been wonderful. Yeah, thank you yeah, very much. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Uh, thank Marika you. And also thank you, Mariko, for thank you. accompanying me here. Thank you.